Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Owen Engel, and I help lead the Policy Punchline's energy team. I'm James Cross. I'm part of the uh, energy team here at Policy Punchline. Today, I have the great pleasure of introducing uh, someone who is on the verge at the forefront of both scholarship, policymaking, and uh, at the forefront of the business world, Dr. Varun Sivaram, as uh, a physicist and best-selling author uh, with experience spanning the corporate policy and academic sectors. Dr. Sivaram has spent time as CTO of Renew Power Limited, a multi-billion dollar renewable energy firm that is India's largest. He's currently a visiting fellow at the Columbia University's Center for Global Energy Policy, has a long history in academic and policy research positions ranging from the Council on Foreign Relations to senior policy advisor to several big members of our government. He holds a PhD in condensed matter from Oxford University and undergraduate degrees from Stanford University. He's also the best, uh, an author of the best book I read in 2020, Taming the Sun. So Dr. Sivram, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Owen. I'm glad you liked the book. Yeah, I mean, uh, so just starting it all off, going to dive right into Taming the Sun. Um, in, in your book, you explain a lot of the dynamics around solar power, uh, your experience in solar power, your experience in both the research sector, uh, down with the electrical engineering stuff, as well as at the policy level. So could you possibly give our listeners a brief summary of of just kind of your vision for the role of solar power in the next half century, and maybe describe some of the innovations, technological, financial, or systemic um, that might get us there. That's a really big question to jump in on, but um, just hitting hitting home right away. It, it's a huge question. And um, well, first of all, thanks for reading the book. Um, I, I wrote it because solar was kind of at this, solar was on the verge of going from a niche topic to a very large mainstream topic. I think solar now is indisputably a large mainstream topic. Um, you know, if if I if you asked me a couple of years ago, what I said in the book was, uh, solar is going to be our dominant energy source. It it really has to be that way. More sunlight hits the earth uh, every hour than the world uses in an entire year. Um, but uh, in addition to just being the source with the largest technical potential. Um, Solar had come down a remarkable cost curve. The technology had improved to a point where uh, we could really envision using solar energy to meet many, if not most, of our energy needs sometime this century. And so I wrote him the sun as a roadmap for how to get there, for how solar could become the dominant energy source. And in the last two years, solar has only become more attractive. You see the International Energy Agency, for example, calling solar the new king of electricity. It, it, it is an ascendant energy source, and I'm fully confident that it'll continue to ascend. Uh, although, as I write in the book, it will require three types of innovation to get there. Um, solar today, a little more than 2% of global uh, electricity production. The goal I set in the book by 2050, mid-century, was for solar to produce 33% or a third of the world's electricity production. And then sometime later this century, it could be on the 50 year time horizon that you said, Owen, sometime later this century, 2070, 2080, um, solar should become so dominant that it, pro it, it provides a majority, it supplies a majority of humanity's energy needs. And that will be an enormous milestone. You know, 
it's, it's hard to envision solar becoming so dominant, but I, I certainly think that's the way we have to go, given that it is our single largest uh, potential energy source. So very excited uh, for, for how solar is doing, but let me just walk through the three types of innovation you mentioned, Owen. Um, the first, financial. You know, in order to deploy this tremendous amount of solar, we're going to need trillions of dollars to be invested in uh, solar projects, both large-scale projects um, that you know can cover square miles, but also smaller-scale projects on warehouse or factory rooftops, or uh, even on homes. Um, so the the first order of businesses is, is unlocking finance, and we can talk more about how to do that. The second type of innovation required is technological innovation. I, I still firmly believe that uh, tomorrow's solar panels will not look like today's solar panels, or at the very least, you know, within uh, the solar panel itself, even though it might still look like literally a black box, um, the materials inside a solar panel may change over time. Um, and we can talk about that as well. And then third, I think an incredibly important type of innovation is called systemic innovation. This is reconfiguring the global economy and the energy systems that solar plugs into to enable us not just to use solar to power today's uses of electricity, lights in homes, for example, air conditioners, but also uh, to power uses that haven't been accessible to solar in the past, transportation in the form of electric vehicles, industrial uses. All of this will require us to electrify our economy and also use solar energy uh, to power uses of uh, energy that are not uh, electrifiable or that, that we won't electrify anytime soon. So that's the third kind of innovation. You put these three types of innovation together and you'll surmount the various barriers that are going to come in the way of solar rising from its current low share of you know, a little more than 2% to get to that 33% level of electricity and eventually a greater than 50% share of total energy consumption, not just electricity. So thinking about King Solar and this 33% share, even 50% share, there are so many massive benefits that we get, but at the same time, solar does tend to come on at, at certain times throughout the day. Um, and there's all these issues that might come with intermittency and stuff, which a lot of uh, critics of solar focus on. But one thing that you note in your book a good bit is the conversation about solar value deflation and how this might change uh, in future years, but also how it might kind of inhibit the, the growth of solar in some respects. So uh, could you possibly describe this phenomenon to our listeners and then also maybe how, how you see us avoiding this in the future? Yeah, absolutely. The temptation is that you look at solar's growth trajectory of the last couple of decades and it looks like a hockey stick, right? Normally in climate change, when we talk about hockey sticks, we're talking about a bad thing, the increase in carbon emissions. But the rise in solar power is a good kind of hockey stick. It looks kind of like that. I hope I mirrored that correctly for the audience. Um, but uh, it, it would be a mistake to kind of blindly project the hockey stick going forward because solar's own deployment is a kind of rate limiting process or a, a self-limiting process. It's as you deploy more solar on grids, the value of that solar declines over time. It eats its own lunch, so to speak. And the reason that happens is the more solar you put on a given electricity grid, the more power you're producing at the exact same time of the day, often you know, right in the middle of the day when the sun's overhead. Um, and therefore, that instantaneous power becomes less and less valuable. Um, uh, so as you put more solar onto a grid, um, instantaneously, the amount of power right in the middle of the day is going to increase. 
and demand for that power is not going to keep up commensurately unless we have innovations to make sure that we can consume as much power as we produce in the middle of the day. So the way grids work today, we don't really control our demand all that much. That means that the more solar we put on the grids, the less valuable the next, the marginal solar panel is going to become. And over time, once you get past a certain penetration level, uh, solar will just not be very valuable. We already see that in many markets around the world where we've surpassed double digit penetrations of our electricity coming from solar energy. So given this, what do we do about value deflation? What do we do about this hockey stick kind of petering out and peaking? Because that would be disastrous. That would prevent solar from uh, getting to its 33% threshold by mid-century and becoming the world's most potent and powerful tool against climate change. Well, to prevent that, uh, that that's precisely the nut of the book is, is how these three types of innovation prevent that. Uh, financial innovation helps us to keep building new solar plants, but it doesn't really solve the value deflation problem. Technology innovation helps us to make solar even cheaper. So, you know, even though it's continuing to eat into its own value, its cost will fall over time. And therefore, it, you know, it, its value that it produces, though falling, will still be above its cost, which is falling faster. And the last kind of innovation, systemic innovation, enables us, for example, to consume solar when it's produced. You know, we can use systemic innovation, reconfigure our systems so that electric vehicles charge right when the solar is being produced. Or we use solar energy that otherwise would be surplus and discarded to produce hydrogen to use in other parts of the economy, like the industrial sector. And that's another way of making sure that the solar that's generated in the middle of the day when there's far too much solar is still valuable. That's the third way that you counteract value deflation and make sure that we continue to want to build out more and more solar power to do productive economic uh, activities. So that, that's kind of the answer to the question is, what's the danger? The danger is solar eats its own lunch and hits a brick wall. What's the solution? Innovation to chip away at that brick wall so that solar continues to rise. Yeah, um, I just wanted to ask um, a little bit more about um, sort of the techn technological innovation um, that will help solve sort of the problem of intermitt intermittency um, that you discuss in the book and that's sort of widely um, described as the biggest um, sort of brick wall that you mentioned uh, to solar power. Uh, you mentioned um, smart grids or basically enabling uh, increased energy use when that solar is being produced so we can charge cars during the middle of the day, um, increase industrial activity during the middle of the day. Um, could you talk a little bit more about um, maybe the smart technology um, that we can apply to our grids to, to make that possible. And also, um, you mentioned uh, hydrogen, you know, the production of hydrogen that can then be used later. Are there any other exciting um, technologies um, in terms of batteries uh, that, that, that you discussed in the book that you'd like, that, that you're very optimistic about um, uh, moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, actually, before I jump in, I should have mentioned right at the beginning that one of the reasons solar is so exciting is that it's become really cheap really fast. Solar is more than 90% cheaper today than it was a decade ago. And if you had told me that a decade ago, I would have laughed you out of the room. Uh, but that's where we are right now and it continues to get cheaper, even with existing technology. So solar today is the cheapest form of electricity in many countries, if not most around the world. Uh, and it's the fastest growing source of electricity around the world. Again, it's the new king of electricity. To answer your question though, what do we do about making sure that our systems can use solar energy? Um, I, I think of this as, as having uh, several different options. 
the, the first kind of bucket or category is we can make our grids bigger. The larger your electricity grid is, the more likely it's going to be that when you produce solar energy, there's going to be a productive use for it somewhere, right? So if you expand your grid, you might even expand it so large that you're producing solar during one hour of the day and in another time zone, you have someone who's able to use it. So you're spreading out your energy demand and your supply, frankly, over multiple time zones in a large area. The second uh, thing you can do uh, to kind of mitigate value deflation or productively use solar uh, is you can use existing large power plants to ramp up and down to compensate for solar's intermittency. So natural gas plants are pretty good at doing this. And so uh, that, that, that's one strategy. In, in India, where I spent the last couple of years, uh, coal plants, which otherwise we think of as like really bad things and you know, should be shut down. Well, the ones that don't get shut down can actually be cycled in a way that they can provide flexibility for solar intermittency. The third way is what you mentioned, James, and that's energy storage. Batteries are one subset of energy storage. You can use batteries to store your energy during the day and discharge it, let's say at dinner time when folks come home, but the sun is set. And that's you know, a, a third and very important way, although uh, it'll still take some continued cost declines for that to become the dominant way uh, that we uh, you know, mitigate solar intermittency and add flexibility to the grid. The fourth way uh, related, as you mentioned, James, to a smart grid is to match demand up with supply or use demand side flexibility. You do that in many ways. You, know, uh, you can network together millions of thermostats um, or water heaters. You can, as you mentioned, have electric vehicles charge at intelligent times. Or you can even connect the electricity sector to other sectors like transportation or industry. We mentioned hydrogen. Well, one cool thing that you can do in what we call the hydrogen economy is you can say, look, solar electricity that's produced by solar panels is of limited use to me because as soon as I produce that electricity, I've got to either store it in an expensive battery or use it in that instant. But if I could convert it to some more storable medium, that's why fossil fuels have done so well, they store energy in an energy dense medium. Well, then I could use it whenever I needed to. And so you can produce hydrogen by using solar energy to split water into oxygen and hydrogen. And that hydrogen then uh, can be used tomorrow, next year, to power an industrial process. It could be used in the production of steel or chemicals or fertilizer or cement. Um, that's a powerful way to, in effect, store solar energy in a far more portable medium uh, than what batteries offer us. Um, so those are some of the strategies we'll have to, to use. The point is we've passed the point where the challenge was just making solar cheap enough to build. We've made it cheap enough and we're building it. We got to do more than that. We got to walk and chew gum. The walking part is building more solar. The chewing gum part is doing all of these different strategies to make sure it's valuable to economic productivity. Uh, in your chapter, um, uh, you discuss in Taming the Sun, um, uh, I, I was fascinated by the idea that actually the, the grids of tomorrow could be smaller. Um, that we could have microgrids that would be connected together into a larger network um, of grids. Um, so we have a, a large grid that's composed of sort of modular subunits of um, microgrids. Uh, could you talk a little bit, a little bit more about that um, and specifically um, any markets or countries or regions where, where that might actually, that model might be um, 
the way that uh, that renewables sort of um, take shape? Everywhere. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting overexcited here, but um, I'm so glad you read that chapter, James. It proves you made it all the way through the book. Um, and that was possibly one of my more speculative chapters, and it was a complex one. So, you know, few people have articulated it as well as you have, James. Um, this this idea of a nationwide or even continent-spanning backbone made of high-voltage direct current lines that make sure that we're connecting time zones together and connecting deserts or sunlight-rich areas with demand centers. That's what the backbone's for. But as you mentioned, James, there are modular subunits below that backbone. And you can imagine that a city might be served by various autonomous zones, each of which can trade energy and each of which can produce its own energy using distributed energy resources. Could be you know, community solar plants at the scale of one megawatt, but not 100 megawatts uh, with batteries or uh, you know, e even some rooftop solar uh, on, the, uh, on homes or on warehouses. These uh, different sources at the macro scale and what I call the meso scale would be synergistic. It, they would complement each other. You can imagine a city might get 50% of its energy from local sources and 50% from imports from this big backbone. And over the course of a year, uh, you'll therefore, you'll meet all of its energy requirements. You'll have a resilience benefit because if anything ever goes down, the backbone goes down, you've still got your autonomous zones uh, that are gonna be able to island and continue to serve them with local supply. Uh, you can imagine uh, this will be a very smart system. These autonomous zones will be constantly, kind of like cell phone towers, they'll be constantly reconfiguring. Power will flow in two directions. At the distribution level, we'll be far smarter about efficiently using our infrastructure, and hence it'll be cheaper. Today, I think we overbuild our infrastructure because we have one-way power systems. Power systems go from the transmission level in one direction down to the distribution grid down to your home. And as a result, we have to size the distribution grid for the peak event, the one time that there's a ton of power flowing on this one line. Instead, we could save, us, save ourselves a ton of money if instead these were reconfigurable, highly two-way bidirectional systems uh, composed of, as you mentioned, modular subunits. I'm, I'm going to you know, continue to talk about this, but you got to cut me off if I'm rambling. Um, I, I believe in hierarchical systems. And so the hierarchy, there's kind of the backbone at the top level. But then all the way down, it's like a fractal. Um, and every uh, unit, as you go down, you go from the back, the, the HVDC backbone, but then you have microgrids composed of other microgrids composed of buildings, which themselves act as microgrids. And all of them communicate with each other using standard interoperable software protocols in much the same way that uh, you know, global server infrastructure uh, operates. And we harness the principles of distributed computing um, you know, the internet doesn't work with like a single central controller. Instead, the internet operates as a result of a bunch of great protocols, TCP IP. And so we can solve great problems and we've solved them in other sectors. It pains me that we haven't solved this in the grid. And I think we can. And the future grid is going to be both smaller and bigger thanks to this principle of modularity and hierarchical nature. Um, and as a result, it will harness both large scale solar and smaller scale solar. It'll be more resilient more affordable and cleaner. So I really love thinking about that micro grid concept and the way those things work together. But sometimes the literature on it is a little bit confusing. And, and from what I, I've learned, I know that the, the 
financial side of it and the costs uh, upfront in terms of building microgrids tend to sometimes outweigh the benefits on the other side. So when you mentioned before finding different ways to put solar to use. So on a microgrid scale, how would that work? Like if, if a community had excess solar at one point during the day, do you think that that solar would go towards another microgrid uh, via this backbone or, or would it rather work towards some other useful mean? I know in the book you gave one specific example that's um, I think an industrial application. Um, so so it, if you were the policymaker for a small town in, in North Carolina, I'm, I'm from Charlotte, so let's just take North Carolina for an example. How would your conversation with them go when they're uh, considering the cost benefits of building this microgrid? Yeah, absolutely. So to be clear, if I am a small municipality, um, let's say we are in the lucky situation where I control my own municipal utility. Not all municipalities can do this, but let's say we're lucky. We are either a big city like Los Angeles or a small city like Aspen, Colorado, um, both of which uh, basically have utilities that are either munis or co-ops. The important thing is not just that we build the solar. The important thing is that we operate the grid intelligently and that's where the utility comes from. Utility is going to want to have the ability first to see all of the resources it has. It might have a community scale solar farm here, a battery there. It could have a bunch of uh, electric vehicle chargers either on people's homes or you know, in, uh, on the distribution grid or in workplaces. There may be some industrial loads uh, that it has access to. And then this utility is going to want to, in addition to seeing all of this in real time, knowing down to the solar panel who is producing what in real time, it's going to want to then have some way of controlling all of these resources, either directly or through incentive-based mechanisms saying, you know, you're going to get an instantaneously cheaper rate for charging your car when the, there's excess uh, solar on the grid. And as a result of, uh, intelligent visibility and operation, naturally, we should see some behaviors emerge. We should see, for example, local solar generated at one part of the city should be used to meet demand in some other part of the city naturally, right? When there's a net power deficit, uh, power should be flowing into the city from the transmission link. The city should be smart enough to operate its distribution grid so that power rarely, if ever, flows back violating a backfeeding uh, constraint on that transmission substation because of their contract with the transmission operator. There's a range of things that you can do, but you have to do them all using intelligent operation of the electricity grid. That's why I'm particularly worried that uh, folks are so excited about distributed energy resource aggregators. Aggregators are great, don't get me wrong, but they're gonna need utility partners or distribution system operator partners so that we can really harness the true potential of what we call virtual power plants using distributed resources to recreate the flexible characteristics of central power generating stations. All right, this is getting pretty wonky. So let's zoom back out and, and move to a different topic. Yeah, um, just moving to a different topic. Um, I sort of want to transition um, to an area of focus that, that's been um, important for you recently, which is uh, uh, solar power in, in, in India. Um, uh, I was I saw headlines recently about um, Prime Minister Modi um, inaugurating a new uh, mega center um, in uh, I believe it's Kutch, uh, uh, Gujarat, um, and so it's going to be the largest renewable energy um, project uh, 
uh, in the world. Um, and so it, it's going to be, it, it's going to produce a, a massive amount of solar power. So we're seeing um, large scale investment um, on the one hand. And then um, I was also just going to bring up that uh, the Rockefeller Foundation has announced that they are going to, they're launching a new project to put in um, 10,000 microgrids in, in, in India. So we're seeing both on the small scale and the large scale, there's, there's new investment. Um, is the landscape right now, does the landscape right now make you optimistic about uh, how your model of sort of, um, uh, your, your model for an energy network, um, does it make you optimistic about uh, how quickly that could be implemented and the direction that India is moving? Look, I'm very optimistic about the, the direction India is moving. Um, I will say I spent a ton of time in Kutch, Gujarat, right? Uh, it has the world's largest salt flat, in case you're ever interested. Um, also phenomenal food, all vegetarian. And uh, it will be the world's largest collection of wind turbines. And, and our company, Renew Power, uh, is, is one of the biggest players in Kutch Gujarat. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's been fantastic uh, to, to spend a lot of time there and, and get to know the, the region. But why am I so excited about India? Well, I, I'm excited and I think it's the most important energy transition in the world uh, because, you know, on the one hand, India suffers from crippling air pollution and the imperative to act rapidly to change its energy mix is you know, growing in importance. Um, moreover, India could become the world's number one emitter of carbon emissions later this century. It could surpass China. It's on track to surpass the United States in the next 20 years. So given that, both for local and global purposes, an energy transition, a clean energy transition is very important for India. But I'm optimistic because in the last decade, India has rapidly risen to become one of the world's largest solar markets. It was briefly number two and keeps trading places with the United States for the last couple of years. Um, going forward, India could be the world's largest solar market in the coming years. Solar is cheaper in India to build than anywhere else in the world, believe it or not. Um, and uh, India has set a remarkable target of 450 gigawatts of solar and wind power and, and some other renewables, but largely solar and wind. Uh, that if it meets it will require it to build no new coal power plants and may actually lead to the closure of many existing coal-fired stations. So this is all great news. What are the hurdles? Um, India needs to unlock a lot of finance. Uh, India will need to invest in the flexibility we've been talking about, like storage. Um, and fundamentally, India needs to reform certain aspects of its electricity sector, particularly the distribution utilities that rarely pay on time for the power that companies like ours for new power uh, generate. Uh, so, you know, with those steps, India could cement its rise, that's a terrible metaphor, but you get my point, as a solar superpower. If solar is the king of electricity, India should be the king of solar. Um, I'll make a terrible joke, it should be the Maharaja of solar. Uh, and it, I, I, I sincerely believe it's, it, you know, it, it can happen uh, with some concerted political effort and uh, hopefully some some support from international players, particularly the United States. As young students um, or, or younger students, getting a little bit on the older side here, um, students like James and I are looking to kind of make an impact in this field, potentially. So both in India, um, what, what needs to be done in India from a research perspective, from a, um, from a progress perspective, what kind of important uh, different research can, can be done there. And more broadly, uh, what do you see as a way that students like us could contribute to the 
growing decarbonization movement and the growing um, movement to make solar power a, a bigger force in today's world? Look, I think there's so much, so much to be done uh, that students from all disciplines uh, can contribute. Um, and I want to emphasize that, that it's going to be an all hands on deck approach to get to decarbonization. So for example, this is not just a science problem. Um, but part of what I've learned in my career, going from science to public policy, to the private sector, um, to academia, I've worn all four hats, right? And across these, uh, these sectors, I learned that there's real value to be added. We need new scientific solutions. We, I, we missed out on talking about perovskite solar, but one day I'll talk your ear off about it. Um, we need public policymakers who actually understand what needs to be done, right? It's, it's much more than, you know, build solar and wind. It's nuanced questions of what are the market failures? You know, there, there, there's a market failure about pricing pollution. There's a market failure about underinvesting in innovation. There are two separate market failures require two separate policies. Carbon pricing alone won't get us there. Research and development alone won't get us there. Um, we need uh, very effective uh, private sector folks to develop the companies of the future and to guide the investors of the future uh, to, to invest in this and build this clean energy transition. Um, and, and we need folks who have breadth across geographies. Um, you know, the, the hardest problems, in my opinion, are going to be the energy transitions in emerging economies, um, whether it's India, Vietnam, or Indonesia, or Brazil. Um, these are very, very difficult energy transitions because not only do you have to transition rapidly growing economies to clean energy, you got to do it on a budget constraint. You, you cannot afford expensive solutions and you need innovation desperately. So um, I, I would strongly encourage um, students who are interested in working on energy and climate, like yourselves, on, on decarbonization, uh, to, to seek a, a broad set of experiences early on in your career uh, to get to know these, these different ways you can have impact. Um, and uh, don't, don't be you know, dissuaded if you think, well, well, the thing that I really like it's this discipline and it's not uh, engineering or science. That thing that you really like is likely going to have a very important intersection uh, with energy and climate. And, you know, you can thoughtfully find a way to have a huge impact. And, you know, I hope to be a resource to you guys. Um, uh, it's wonderful to meet you. And I hope to be a resource to, to others in your class and congrats on, on all that you've been doing. And I, you know, my best wishes for a successful graduation. Thank you so much. I'm, Dr. Sivram, we are so grateful that you came today and uh, thank you for speaking to us about microgrids and everything in between. Um, love to have you back sometime to, to get to hear your spiel on uh, perovskite. Um, I haven't heard too much about that technology, although I've read a decent bit. So thank you for uh, listening to Policy Punchline. You can find us on Spotify, Apple uh, Music and other uh, wonderful places. And, and thank you, Dr. Severin, for coming in. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs.
Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.